believers into his life, either to share the word of God with him, your word, Lord, and we would see him saved, or to give him a, a comfort and a peace as he goes through this difficult time. So we lift him up to you. Pray, Father, that you would move in a very real and practical way. And lastly, I lift up the couples retreat and pray, God, that you would do a great work. I pray, Father, for all of the planning and preparation, the schedules, but we pray for your will and, Lord, what you desire to happen and how you desire to happen. I pray for Holland and his teaching, Lord, that you would use him. I pray for Richard. I pray for myself. And again, God, we just pray for a weekend that just gives you glory, strengthens couples, builds families, and uh, and is good for this work here that you want to do at the church. And so, Lord, we just lift all to you once again, thanking you for this evening, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 9, we'll be starting at verse 1. I'll give an introduction first. One of my favorite illustrations, it's more than an illustration, it's a reality, but pictures that we've been given of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God and, and the point that he is making, the illustration of the cross um, and the book of Hebrews, how God has put aside the old and brought in the new and how the new is better and just all of these things are tied up based upon what we looked at and we'll again go through that in a little bit, but on Peter's confession but also in Peter's misunderstanding. He understood that Jesus was the, Jesus was the Messiah but he didn't have a proper understanding of the Christ because he did not have a proper understanding of the cross. If you do not know the cross, you will never understand completely the Christ or the Messiah. So here in chapter 9, Jesus gives us a living illustration because of potential confusion. And so Peter's proclamation concerning his confusion of the cross in the previous chapter, chapter 8, look at verse 29. It says, he said to him, Jesus said to Peter, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. That's the Greek word for the Messiah. You are the Messiah. You are the ones that have been promised and the one we have been waiting for. But a little bit further down in verse 31, then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? You've got this fisherman rebuking Lord God of the universe, but he doesn't have understanding. He, he does not understand the death of Christ. And it's almost as if this has gotten past them that he will be killed, and I'm sure that that was shocking to them, but after three days he's going to rise again, and they didn't really seem to latch on to that. There was Jesus' exhortation, verse 34, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Well, that would speak volumes to the mind of that day, because a cross, cross was a thing of terror. A cross, that was a thing of death, and that was a thing of destruction, and, and just the fact that I may have a cross that I would have to take up, because remember, you would take up the cross and you would have to take your own cross up to Mount Golgotha to be crucified upon. Well, for me, anybody, for them, to take up a cross is, is just beyond them. Well, the Lord was making a point of discipleship there. And then down in verse 38, 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus is basically, in essence, to paraphrase, telling him, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ. I am going to be killed. But be bold, be bold in your walk and in your life, your manner of living in which I have instructed you because there is going to come a day, one day, that I will be back. And so although seemingly he's going to die, but now he's going to be brought back to this life that is going to be so grand and so glorious. And so we need to look at what is being said from the perspective of the apostles, apart from the knowledge of the Bible. Put yourself in their position. The Holy Spirit has yet to be sent, and so they're not having understanding. They never seem to get anything, but then they are, Acts chapter 2, filled with the Holy Spirit. And even as we're looking at First Peter, we'll see evidences that Peter did, in fact, get it. But as of right now, with this proclamation of Jesus dying, their minds have to be spinning. They're recognizing Jesus as Messiah. He's the king of all kings, and he's the Lord of all lords. We're his guys, and they're thinking that they're going to have position in the kingdom of God. I mean, he said to follow me, and I would imagine they could say in in those words. Those words were so irresistible. Those words just penetrated us, and it's not like we left them for position, but now we're seeing that he's going to be Messiah. And, and, and Peter and John and James, the inner circle, just think of the positions that they must get, and, and, and the rest of the guys as well. But now he's talking about death. And then the Jews, they were expecting Messiah to restore Israel back to the glory days of, of King David. They're under Roman occupation, and they're looking for somebody to relieve them from that Roman occupation. And so they're probably more of the mindset, when do we conquer the world and restore the kingdom? Matter of fact, we saw that mindset in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, before the Lord ascended into heaven. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And notice they say restore. Again, restore it back to the glory days of King David. Now, this is after Jesus has risen from the dead. And so they're starting to understand Again, not in perfection, but as far as some of the elements of what's going on here, they have yet to really understand what the kingdom of heaven is. But then they become perplexed because the first thing Jesus speaks after Peter's great recognition of him as Messiah, right away, is his death and how this does not compute. I mean, we elect a president, we put him into office, and we just think of the great things that he is going to do. And what if just right off the bat he says, well, I'm going away. I'm going to die. And all of that hope of a new president, all of that trust that we have put into this person, I'm talking about us as a people, and then all of a sudden he says, I'm going to die or I'm going to go away? That's just not going to really compute. It's just not really going to make sense. So what about all of the promises and everything that you know, the the things that we've dreamed about as far as this election. Well, again, we've given our lives, the apostles could say, to this man, and now this man says that he's going to die. We gave up all that we had, all that we are, and all that we are to be for basically this dead man walking. But Jesus tells them, in essence, don't worry. Although I will die, I'm going to come back. Back from where? And so they had a match. You're going to be coming back from the dead. So again, it's kind of too big for us to understand apart from the word of God. It had to be huge for them to understand. And so really what 
the transfiguration, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, is Jesus in essence saying, let me show you. Let me give you a picture. Let me give you understanding. So we move into verse 1 of chapter 9. And he, Jesus, said to them, And surely I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now the key to understanding this verse is to understand the word for kingdom with his basileia. This word basileia can also be translated, other than kingdom, it can also be translated royal majesty or regal splendor. Because if you're just talking about the second coming of Christ, it makes no sense, or Jesus was wrong, because none of them were around at that time, not here on earth. And he says, most surely I say to you, that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see, well, the kingdom of God or see the glory of God, the royal majesty of God, or the regal splendor of God. And so what Jesus is talking about is what he said in verse 38 when he says, do not be ashamed of me when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The chapter numbers were put there by the translators, but in the original manuscripts, there's not even the verse number. So this is all the same thought. And so before you die, what Jesus is saying, you're going to see me in all of my glory. And so that had to really strike them. And again, they're trying to trying to sort all of this out. He's going to die, but Jesus is giving them hope. And the hope that he is giving them is the same hope that we have. It's the hope of the resurrection. Hope, again, trusting in God for the future. The same one who raised Jesus from the dead will be the same one that raised us from the dead. And so we, we talk about these things, the resurrection back from the dead. And even today in our minds, man has never been able to conquer death. I mean, not apart from God. And this is even too big for our minds to really understand or, or to comprehend. And so that's why the illustration, that's why the picture is here. Again, before you die, at least some of you are going to see me in my glorified body. You will see this man come in his royal majesty or all the glory of God. Now, a key to understanding what puts it in context and what had to really speak to their hearts at this time, especially when he's speaking of the resurrection and whatnot, is the term son of man. Now, the first mention of the son of man, that term the son of man, is in the prophetic book of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. Again, so many times in the scriptures when something is used for the first time, it sets the standard and how it's going to be used in the scripture. Who's Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to Jews. He's speaking to people who are at least familiar with the Old Testament. Their minds would go back to this, to Daniel chapter 7. And so we should look and see what is being said in Daniel chapter 7. It says, starting again in verse 9, And I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was as white as snow. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire that speaks of judgment. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, more than likely angels, ten thousand. 
and ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated and books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13 is the key. And I watched in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man. One like the Son of Man. When you see that word like in the scriptures, it's important to understand when it says Son of Man, the idea is a human, but this is one who is like a human being. Well, we know that Jesus was fully human, but yet fully God. And so one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the ancient days and they brought him near before him. And so the idea is Jesus taking possession of this kingdom. And so really the context that we see here in Daniel chapter 7 fits in what we're looking at in Mark chapter 9. Then to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And so there's a lot that is packed into those verses that I just read. There's the destruction of the Antichrist and those who have followed them. And again, the point is not to get into all of that. But it's just to connect this term, son of man, with what Jesus is talking about here in Mark chapter 9. It's talking about the establishment of the kingdom of Messiah. And so once again, the apostles are of the mindset, this is Messiah. We've seen him do all the things that were prophesied that Messiah was going to do. Just the miraculous healing and so on and so forth, the walking on the water. And all of these things have come to pass so that Peter recognized that you're truly the Messiah. But then Messiah tells us he's going to be put to death. And that doesn't really compute with their thought process. But again, Jesus said, don't be concerned. I am going to come back. And so now they're getting this illustration. And so when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, we should put it in the context of end-time theology, for the most part, and his second coming. So keep in mind the intent of the Holy Spirit here is, and especially as we see this is the time of the season that we're going to see that little baby in the manger, that you'll never truly understand who that baby is unless you understand the cross or the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he is going to come again. God rest you, merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, O tidings of comfort and joy. Just even that stanza in that song speaks volumes, but again, the world, the world will be singing that song this coming season, but they don't understand the ramifications, nor do they understand the magnitude of it all unless you understand the cross. If you don't understand the cross, you'll never understand the manger. So again, the world, the world does not understand that baby, does not understand Jesus Christ, but here the Lord is going to give us a very uh, vivid picture of what he is speaking about. And so 
Here's James and John. Again, let me read it again. And he said to them, Surely I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, so these are those who were standing there that are going to see the glory of God. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart from themselves, and he was transfigured before them. It's interesting. If you go to Israel... You stand on Mount Megiddo, and it overlooks the valley of Armageddon, this, this huge valley. It's almost as if you're standing on uh, Chino Hills, you know, in the mountains over there, and looking across to the mountains that are over where Mount Baldy are across this great valley. It, it's not just this huge mountain range that you're looking at. There's certain, we might even refer to them as high hills, but one of the hills that you see there is the Mount of Transfiguration. And again, it's just kind of an interesting concept if you were able to sit on Mount Megiddo throughout all of the history of the Bible, just all of the things that you would see. At one point in history, you would be sitting there looking across that valley, and on that particular mountain, you would see this brightness that was radiating out from that mountain, and that brightness would be the glory of God on this day that Jesus was transfigured before his apostles. Now, when it says that he was transfigured, the word is metamorpho. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. This is to change into another form. And what is happening here is Jesus is changing from the physical to the spiritual. It's the same thing that is going to occur at the rapture of the church when the church is changed in the moment and the twinkling of an eye. Keeping in mind, he's given us this picture back in 38, the last part, when he comes in glory, the glory of his Father with holy angels. This is a picture of the Father's glory, and it's the fulfillment of God's plan. It's the fulfillment of God saving mankind and glorifying himself. I would imagine to the Jewish mind, this is the glory. The same glory that is being seen in Jesus is the same glory that filled the temple. It's the same glory that led Israel throughout the wilderness during that time of trouble and and protected them and watched over them. This is the same glory that reflected in Moses' face after he had seen the glory of God up on the mount as well, up on Mount Sinai. And so as we see this glory, this would speak volumes to the Jewish mind once more. But this is also a picture of the glory that we will live in as God's children, those who call Jesus Christ Lord. Matter of fact, we will receive a translated body as well, a glorified body, so that we will be able to live in the presence of God. We're told in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2-3, through 3, Beloved, we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, when Jesus is revealed, when Christ comes back, he, we shall be like him. Just as he has a glorified body, we will have a glorified body. We'll never be God. He's not talking about being like him in that regard, but as far as a spiritual or glorified body. For we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Verse 3, back in Mark chapter 9 His clothes, the Lord's clothes, became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launder on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And so of all of the Old Testament saints, why Moses and Elijah? 
There's three main reasons. And so this glory, this is a glory that they have never seen before. The absolute purity of God. And you have Moses and Elijah who have been revealed to them for a particular purpose. And so what are the reasons? Well, first, it was just the fact that anybody from the past, Moses, he died about 1,480 years before. Elijah died about 900 years before. He didn't die, but he was taken up into heaven about 900 years before. Just the fact that anyone from the past reappears shows that man is able to be resurrected. And so again, that concept within itself had to be huge to themselves. Somebody who could die. Well, Moses died. They know Moses died. The devil and Michael were fighting over the body, but lo and behold, there he is. And then we have Elijah, and we'll see the pictures that they present. He hasn't been around for 900 years, and then there he is. You'll see Jesus hanging on a cross. They will see Jesus hanging on a cross. But now they have a confidence that there is such a thing as life after death. If Moses and Elijah can come back, how much more so should Messiah be able to come back? And so he's talking about the kingdom. They're part of this kingdom, but he is going to die, but he's going to come back. And so now they know that it is possible for somebody to be resurrected from the dead. The second reason for Moses and Elijah would be the symbolism of the Old Testament passing of the torch to the New Testament. Moses, Moses is a representation of the law. They always called it the law of Moses. And so to the Jewish mind, Moses would be a representation of the law. Elijah, he would be a representation of the prophets. Man, or I'm sorry, uh, a, a prophet calling man to keep the law, to be obedient to God's word. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, it says, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, You shall make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, as much as he, Jesus, is also mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. And Luke, we're even told what Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking about. In Luke chapter 9, verse 30 through 31, Luke's account of this event. And behold, two men talked with him, <clears throat> who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. <clears throat> so what we have is Moses, representative of the law. Elijah, representative of the prophecies. And they're speaking of the death of Christ. And the idea here is, go back and check it out. What was the law always pointing towards? It was, com- it was always pointing towards the coming of Messiah, but it was necessary to have the death of Messiah for those who were unable to keep the law. And then there was Elijah, just simply all of the prophecies. He's representative of all of the prophets who spoke of the coming of Messiah. And so they're there, and now they're talking about his decease. Did Jesus need to know? Jesus did set aside some of his godly attributes. I don't know to what degree he knew what he knew, but definitely the disciples needed to know because this is a learning experience for them. And just imagine once again the magnitude of this sign that this would give them understanding. 
And then the third reason for Moses and Elijah is that they are a representation of how we will all pass from here to heaven to be with the Lord. Moses, Moses is an example of those who in the Lord who will die or fall asleep and be buried. We saw in Deuteronomy where Moses died. And so those in heaven will be those, obviously, who have died. And then Elijah, he's an example of those who will be here when Christ comes back for his church, those people who will be raptured. We have his testimony, <clears throat> excuse me, in Second Kings chapter 2, verse 11, where it says, Then it happened as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by whirlwind into the heaven. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with them. Therefore, comfort one another and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So, there's going to come a time when all of heaven is filled with either people who have lived a life and have died but have been resurrected, or people who have been raptured. In the church, we're living in the church age right now, but there's going to come a time when that great trumpet sounds. And Jesus is not going to come back to earth, but we are going to meet him in the clouds, and we will be resurrected. The example would be in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, you have the introduction to Jesus Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, you have a picture of the church age. And then in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, After these things, after the church age, I saw a door in heaven open, and a voice that sounded like a trumpet of an archangel said, Come up here, and never again do you see the church here on earth. You only see the church in heaven. And the great tribulation starts after that. And so that's how heaven is populated, if you will, for born-again believers who either die in faith or future event will be raptured. Verses 5 through 8. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi or teacher, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Poor Peter, still very confused. Very important spiritual concept that we see here in verse 6, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. When you don't know what to say, best off to not say anything. (laughs) It's better to be thought a fool, it's been said, than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Um, Peter was ill-prepared. Again, the sending of the Holy Spirit had yet to come. We need to take that advice. When you don't know the answer to give, don't give an answer. Better to not give an answer than to give a foolish answer, but not that you give them no answer. Maybe sometimes your answer is going to be, I'll go check. I'll go find out, because it's important that we be a people who speak truth. And so what was Peter's problem here? Well, number one, Peter was all of the mindset to avoid the cross. He was trying, you know, previously he rebuked the Lord. I'll die for you as if he could possibly die for Jesus Christ. But the problem is without the cross, there's no crown. It was the Father's plan that Christ would go to the cross. So to really understand Peter's problem, 
if you go and you Sunday morning, you come here, right around when service is starting, go over to the infant room as mothers are dropping their children off into the infant room and they go walking away and the kids are screaming for their mother. That's kind of what Peter is doing here. It's the idea of don't leave me, don't leave me. Again, we have given all to Christ. You see this concept played out in Mary, Mary Magdalene, in John chapter 20, verses 16 through 17, when Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. And so man could not cling to Christ at that moment. Peter can't cling to Jesus as far as building these tabernacles or dwelling places on this mountain. Why? Because the Lord needs to ascend to heaven. Why does the Lord need to ascend to heaven? Well, obviously many reasons, part of the plan, but also for the sending of the Spirit. Why? Because they are to do what Mary was commanded to do here, is to go to my brethren and to tell them. We are to go to all of the world, not knowing who the brethren really are, and tell all of humanity of this great gospel. The second mistake that Peter made here was putting Jesus on the same level with Moses and Elijah. Why? Well, many denominations and beliefs do this with, well, even the Old Testament saints, other people who have, they, they have made saints, but the, the idea here is, is that when it comes to Christ and the voice of Christ, nobody, well, everybody pales in comparison to him. Again, verse 7 and 8, And a cloud came, and this is more than likely the glory of God overcoming, or the presence of God overcoming this mountain. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with them. This is my beloved son. Hear him. All throughout all of history, all throughout the Old Testament, I've been speaking through various people, various means, and various ways. I spoke through Moses. I spoke through Elijah. But here you have my son. You have the privileged and you have the one who is going to give his life for all of humanity. So as far as everybody else from the past, they spoke truth and they spoke the word, but now here's my son. My son is going to be the one who gives understanding. He's the one who gives understanding of the Old Testament word. He's the one who gives understanding of everything that the Father has said. He's saying that Jesus is of me, from me, and a part of me as the Son shares the nature and the essence of the Father. Peter, if my son says that the crucifixion is necessary, then it's necessary. Peter, if my son says he's going to be raised on the third day, he's going to be raised on the third day. If he, ascends, he's good. If he says he's going to ascend to heaven and sit at my right hand and one day come again, that's my son. Hear him. Because it's in that that you're going to have hope. It's in that that you're going to have understanding in God and God's plan for the end times, but the end times specifically for your life. I got a call to go visit two people at Kindred Hospital. I bring it up from time to time. It's important that you understand that there's people there that that so desire prayer and need a touch from the Lord. Kindred Hospital is a hospice in Ontario, and usually it's a place where people go to die. 
there was one lady that I, I went and spoke to. She was coherent. And she was actually, seemed, I don't know why she was in there. I didn't ask her, but she was doing well. But she'd been in there since May, and she was pretty much tired. But we had a good conversation. She was a Christian and older lady. And, you know, I'm just praising the Lord, and I know the Lord has me in here for a purpose. And, hey, she encouraged me as I was in there. And then I went to visit this old man, and maybe that was preparation for this other man. He had a trichotomy, you know, trach. And he was, he was very coherent. He kept trying to tell me something. And, and the whole time, he, he just held on to my hand. And he would squeeze my hand. And then he would kind of nod off and he would let go. And I'd take my hand back. But then he would kind of panic and he would look for my hand again. And I'd just see that this, this man just desired to touch. I, I couldn't talk to him. We couldn't converse with one another. I don't know where he is at with the Lord. I did pray for him. I read some scripture to him. But I'm just looking and I just saw in that man... We're all like that person. We're, we're, we're grasping for something in our despair. And, and we want something to hold on to because we need hope, especially in that time. I don't know if he's on his deathbed or not, but that's not important. The important thing is, is this man was looking for something to grasp on to. Maybe he was in pain. I, I don't know. And that's the problem. But here we have somebody to grasp on to, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the word of God and so that we would hear him. And the idea is not just allow the sound to bounce off your eardrums, but allow it to penetrate and to receive this by belief through faith and come to that peace that surpasses understanding that only the Lord is able to offer. Verse 8 again, Suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. Even when it came to the best of saints, Moses and Elijah, and all they represented, Jesus stands alone. On that day of tribulation, on that day of the second coming, in the day of your trouble, it's all about Jesus Christ and your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about keeping the law or the prophets. It's all about the gospel, the good news that Christ offers to all of humanity. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, we're told, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Verse 9, Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things, and how it is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished as it is written. So what he's talking about here is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and how Jesus is fulfilling the word of God. He's speaking of a future event, his second coming, and that Elijah is going to come to prepare the way for his coming. But this last verse, verse 13, is a picture of John the Baptist and how Elijah has come in John Baptist as John prepared the way for the first coming of Christ, just as it was prophesied in the book of Malachi, Elijah is going to come before the second coming of Christ very possibly one of the two witnesses that we see in the book of Revelation. But what is being clear here is Jesus is giving these truths and this real illustration that, yes, I am going to be crucified, and they're going to kill me, and you're going to see me die upon the cross. 
And it's going to even seem like, and we saw this play out, that all is in despair, that I'm gone, but I'm not gone. I won't be with you for a matter of three days, but I am coming back. And I'm going to be coming back in great glory. And just as surely as I came back, as I was risen from the dead, so will you be risen from the dead. We don't know now exactly how we will be, but we know we will be like him. We know that we are going to receive a spiritual body. We know that we are going to have eternal life. Matter of fact, all of humanity will have eternal life. It's all a matter where you're going to spend that life. For those who are in faith in Jesus Christ, you have eternity in the presence of God. Those who have rejected God, just as surely as we saw in the previous chapter, God is going to reject them. But the bottom line is, with all of this proof and everything that has been offered, it all boils down to the knowledge, the choice, the choice is ours. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you spelled these things out to Peter, James, and John, and even the rest of the disciples so long ago, but Father, also for our learning today. And I pray, Father, that we would have a heart to know and to understand these things, that, Father, we would see the reality of these things in our lives, and these things would strengthen us. They would strengthen our resolve, Lord, to continue steadfast in your word and who you have called us to be and what you have called us to do. And, Father, that we would never quit, that we would be a people who are constantly pressing forward. And so, Lord, we just thank you for the picture that you've given us. I pray, Father, that we would live lives accordingly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We all stand, please. Once again, we're going to be have the couples retreat this weekend. I will be up there, but we have a special guest teacher this Sunday morning, Don Stewart, of Pastor's Perspective. So I invite you to come out and support him and his ministry. He's going to be teaching on end-time events, the signs of the end times, things that we're even seeing today. And so it sounds like it's going to be very interesting teaching. Um, I'll be in the back for prayer, but in the fellowship area, there's some pasta pasul that Bill and Robin have prepared for us tonight. God bless you guys.
you guys have a good rest of your week